Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So we are in Ezekiel chapter 4. And as we've studied, as we've, we've started our stay in Ezekiel, we learned a little bit about Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel was a priest, um, a young man. He was about 30 at the time that the book of Ezekiel was written. And Ezekiel is living in Babylon at this time. Uh, he's among the second wave of uh, Jewish exiles who have been taken captive to Babylon. The first group being uh, a group of people, including Daniel, uh, was brought into Babylon. Um, and then Ezekiel, and uh, there's probably about 10,000, maybe even more uh, individuals in Babylon at this time. And, uh, you know, there's Ezekiel's one of the prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah were two other prophets who had been prophesying even long before Ezekiel had been prophesying uh, about warning the people that if they continued in sin, that they would go into captivity. Uh, but the people had basically turned a deaf ear to the warnings of the prophets. And in addition to that, even there in Babylon, false prophets had arose among the exiles. And they're telling the exiles Hey, God is still on our side. Um, God is soon going to crush the Babylonians. And uh, He's going to deliver us. And He's going to bring us back and back into Israel. And everything will be just like it was before. That was what the false prophets were telling uh, the people. But God had a different message. Um, God would not soon deliver them. In fact, through Ezekiel and all these other prophets... God was telling them Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and that they would end up being in Babylon for many more years to come as a result of their continued rebellion against him. And, and because the people had turned a deaf ear to God's verbal message, I mean, he had sent prophet after prophet warning the people, but they had stopped listening to the, to the, to the sound, to the words of the prophecies. God is now going to speak to the people through Ezekiel not through words, though. He's going to use symbolic illustrations. And uh, some of these illustrations are going to be very unusual. And the reason why is because God wants to get their attention. God wants them to be curious. You know, rather than just hearing and, you know, like, like right now, I'm here, here, you know, I'm teaching Ezekiel to you guys. And uh, you've got your Bibles, hopefully, and you're, you're reading and you're, you know, and, and I'm kind of feeding you information about Ezekiel. Um, but if I didn't do that and you wanted to know about Ezekiel, you'd have to dig into your Bible yourself. You'd have to make the effort to learn about it. Um, what was going on with the symbols, the illustrations that God was using through Ezekiel, it's now going to take the people there. Because back in the chapter before, God said, I'm not going to let you speak. I'm going to keep you mute until I give you words to say. And so Ezekiel's not talking. He's just doing these illustrations for the people. And it's going to be a curious thing. The people are going to be like, what is in the world? And we'll talk about that. Few what in the world is Ezekiel doing? But it was a message... And it would take the people some effort. They're going to have to go, well, I wonder what, what this means. You know? And it, it was going to take them effort now if they really wanted to find out the truth. 
God did, or Jesus, I should say, did the same thing in the New Testament with the parables. For a while there, he was teaching plainly, and it got to the point where the, where the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees, they just stopped believing. They just stopped listening. And so at that point, Jesus started teaching in parables. And the disciples said, why are you doing that, Jesus? And he said, because to you it's been given to know the mysteries. But to them, basically, this is what he says, my paraphrasing, they're deaf because they don't want to hear. And so if they want to know, they're going to have to dig in now. And so it's the same kind of thing here. Um, it's now going to take effort on the people's behalf. And so now Ezekiel is being told by God, the first chapter, God revealed his glory to Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is going to need that because what's going to happen in this chapter, he's going to need to know, man, God is real, God is there, um, and God's in control. Secondly, the second chapter, God was speaking to Ezekiel and, and just calling him into the, into the ministry of being a prophet. And now as we get into chapter 4, God is finally now telling Ezekiel what exactly he wants him to do. And so that's where we're picking it up there in Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 1, the very first illustration that Ezekiel is being called to do. Verse 1, You also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city, Jerusalem. Lay siege against it, build a siege wall against it, and heap up a mound against it, Set camps against it also, and place battering rams against it all around. This clay brick, or this clay tile, what is it? Well, archaeologists have actually discovered, they've unearthed these tablets, not the same one, but they've unearthed similar tablets that were used in the Babylonian culture in those days, that they basically, they were made of clay. They were a little bit bigger than a foot square. And I don't know how big, deep they were, but they would actually, they would, they would get these clay tablets. While they were still wet, they would start engraving and they would use that for writing. And so God's telling Ezekiel to go get one of those clay tablets. And instead of writing words, he's going to draw a picture of the city of Jerusalem. You know, basically, I don't know if it's a map or just, you know, images of buildings or the temple. In some way, people go, oh, hey, there's Jerusalem. And then he was to uh, probably, more than likely, although scriptures doesn't tell us, he probably was going to do all of this out in, the, out in the open, maybe out in front of his house. He was going to do that. Um, and then he was to get like, in, well, I think about it like toy soldiers. You know, get some toy soldiers, some toy chariots, and some battering rams, and build siege mounts around the clay tablet. So if you get this picture, here's Ezekiel. He's got this clay thing. He's out in front of his yard. And uh, maybe there's a sandbox nearby. I don't know. But you know, he sets the clay tablet in there, and he starts you know, getting his little toy soldiers. And, you know, I'm thinking, because I'm a boy, or I'm a guy. I was a boy. Um, you know, I'm thinking, hey, this ministry ain't too bad. I mean, I get to play with toys, you know, and it, it just brings back all your memories of playing in the sandbox once again. So that's what Ezekiel's doing. He's, he's, he's kind of basically building this model of what was going to happen to Jerusalem. Verse 3, Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged. And you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. So he's got this model, basically, of, of it, Jerusalem and, and the, the, the uh, Babylonian armies around it and all the stuff for taking it over. Next, he's to take an iron plate, which would be kind of like an iron griddle. If you can picture a, you know, a cast iron griddle. And he's to take that, and he's to place it between himself and and the clay tablet that's depicting Jerusalem being under siege. What sign would this be to the house of Israel? 
I think there's a few things. First of all, one of the most, most probably obvious things, there's some hard times coming for you folks. There's some hard things going to happen to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Ezekiel places it between him and the city. And Ezekiel here is God's representative as his prophet. He's a representative of God. He's going to be on the other side of the iron plate. And so basically I think the symbol or the sign that God's trying to communicate is that God would not be on their side, the people of Jerusalem. He's not going to be on their side during this time. There's going to be a bronze or an iron wall between them. That was contrary to what the false prophets were saying. Hey, you know, God loves you guys and he's, he would never punish you guys. And no, he's on our side. We're his chosen people. Well, at that time, God say, no, you've continued in your rebellion over and over and over again. I'm not on your side. During this time, they would cry out for help and deliverance from their adversaries. But because of their continued sin and their stubborn disobedience against God, their cries and their prayers would go unheard. You might say, wow, that's pretty harsh. It is. But you know, God had warned them. Back when Moses was giving the Ten Commandments and when Moses was getting ready, of course, he didn't lead the people into the Promised Land. Joshua did. But towards the end of his life in Deuteronomy chapters uh, around 28, Moses is warning the people, hey, you know, if you guys follow the Lord God, he's going to bless you. It's the blessings. But if you disobey the Lord, if you turn your backs on him, if you ignore him, there's some cursings coming. And in Deuteronomy 28, 23... This is what it says. And your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. In other words, they're going to be between a a rock and a hard place as a consequence of their sin with no escape. And this sounds very severe because you go, well, wait a minute. I thought God is love. God is love. And now we're saying he's actually against his people. God is love. But God is also holy. And because God is holy, he has to judge sin, which is unholiness. You know, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the Bible tells us. He's still holy. And he still will judge sin. But because God is also love, that's why he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross, to be judged on our behalf, on my behalf and on your behalf for our sin. Now, the good news for Israel, although they're not going to hear in this chapter anyways, is that God had not altogether abandoned them. They're going to be punished for a period of time, but they're being punished for a purpose. And the purpose is God wanted to turn their hearts back to him. And he'll tell them that later. In fact, when you get to the end of the book of Ezekiel, it's kind of a long book. When you get to the end of the book of Ezekiel, there are many chapters there that describe what it's going to be like when Israel as a nation finally turn their hearts towards the Lord and the blessings that will be happening. And of course, that hasn't happened yet. Um, I think we're on the verge of it, but it hasn't happened yet. And that's describing the, the millennial kingdom is what it's describing there towards the end of Ezekiel. When, nation, when the hearts of Israel, the nation and people, are turned back to the Lord. So that's the first illustration. Now, now this, it's all kind of the same illustration, but here's the second aspect of it. Verse 4. Lie on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, 
According to the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days, 390 days. So you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side. Then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have laid on you a day for each year. Therefore, you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem. Your arm shall be uncovered, and you shall prophesy against it. And surely I will restrain you so that you cannot turn from one side to another till you have ended the days of your siege. This is where it starts getting kind of strange. So now he's got this model, he's got this, this griddle that's kind of set up between him and the um, <clears throat> city of Jerusalem being under siege there. And now he's to lay down on his left side for 390 days. Whoa. I mean, it's like, hey, it was fun up until now, but you know, huh? And you know, the Bible doesn't tell us, I mean, we can sus- suspect, well, maybe just for a period of the day, and you know, it would have probably been out in the public. And so maybe during the daytime, at least that's what we hope it was, that maybe just during the daytime, eight hours a day or whatever, 12 hours a day, then he'd have to lay out in front of that thing, and, and then he would be able to go back into his house and sleep at night. We don't know. We, we have no idea. But he's supposed to lay on his left side for 390 days without turning over. Now, if you ask my wife, she would tell you Don turns over about 100 times a night. Because it wakes her up, it drives her nuts. Because I don't, I don't just like roll over. I usually hop up and flip, and I'm like a pancake kind of. You know, I got to do it. And so, it, it, I rock the boat a little too much. But anyways, but Ezekiel is got to. He's just got to stay on his side there for 390 days. And each day is a symbol. It's symbolic for every year that the nation of Israel, which have been the ten northern tribes, had been in rebellion against God. The ten northern tribes. They had been in rebellion first. They had been the first to rebel against God, probably going all the way back to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And they were also the first to go into exile under the Assyrians. And so he's to lay one day for each of the years that they were in rebellion against God. And then he gets to flip over to lay on his right side for another 40 days. I mean, it's it's like a year and a month at first. And then flip over for another month and another week, roughly, um, for another 40 days, symbolizing one day for every year that the nation of Judah, which would have been the southern two tribes, had been in rebellion against God. Now, this would definitely be something that would be a curiosity for the people around Ezekiel. His friends, his family, his neighbors... They would be talking about it, obvious. I mean, people talk about things. That would be something to talk about. And Ezekiel was married, by the way, too. So remember, during this time, the Lord did not speak words of prophecy through Ezekiel. So here he is doing all these really strange things for a grown man, you know, out in, out in, in public there. Can you imagine all the questions that would be kind of going around? Man, is Ezekiel sick? You know, maybe he's depressed. I mean, he's, he's sleeping all the time. Or maybe he's just lost his marbles. You know, he's crazy, you know. You know, even if Ezekiel was allowed to occasionally get up, I mean, you would think that he would at least have to get up to use the bathroom. I mean, I mean that, you know, you'd think at least that. Whatever, no matter what it was, that would have been a very difficult task 
for Ezekiel to accomplish. Put yourself in Ezekiel's boots right there. That would be a tough thing to do. Ezekiel was born into the tribe of Levi, and so he was of priestly descent. Like I said earlier, he was 30 years old when he was called to be a prophet among the exiles in Babylon. 30 years was significant for a priest or a person in the tribe of Levi because when you were a male, you're, you know, you're grown up into priestly families. So that means your, your grandpa's a priest, your, your dad's a priest, your uncles are priests, and, and, and you're a young man and you're being raised up and it's like, uh, you know, they're not asking you, you know, what are you going to do when you grow up? They know what you're going to do when you grow up. You're going to be a priest. So, and, you know, young, young boys, they usually, more, more, and often, more often than not, I think, they idolize their fathers, right? I want to be just like my dad, you know? And so he's got this expectation of being a priest. He's 30 years old. He's at that time where, had they been in Jerusalem, man, he would have been entering into the service of the Lord in the temple. And so, I can just imagine, Ezekiel was probably looking forward to the honor and privilege of serving the Lord in the temple, just like all his ancestors before him. What, what an honor, what a privilege that be to be one of the priests. I would also imagine it would have been a kind of more or less a, pres, a prestigious position to hold among the Jewish people because you're serving their God. People probably tended to look up to the priests much the same way that pastors might be looked up to today. I don't know, but maybe. But what Ezekiel was actually called to do, and there's nothing prestigious about that. There's nothing, there's nothing to boast about or to be proud about, man. He's got he's to serve the Lord by laying on his side for over a year, and then he gets to flip over and stay for another 40 days. I mean, it's like, that's, there's nothing glamorous about it. It would be physically uncomfortable. I, I, can, I can imagine that. It would be humiliating, to some degree at least, it would also be a financial hardship. Because how is he going to earn an income? How is he going to support his family? He's, you know, he's just, he's just there, laying on his side. It would probably be a strain on his marriage. I mean, can you imagine Ezekiel coming home from, from Lord, you know, how'd your day go, Ezekiel? Well, you know, Lord spoke to me and, you know, he told me I'm going to, he told you to do What? <laughs> play with toys, and then lay on your side for a year? What? I mean, that would probably be a strain on a marriage. I mean, if I did that, I'm sure it would be kind of, my wife would be like, I think he is crazy. So, to put it mildly, I think it would be difficult for Ezekiel. And God tells him something here. During this time, the Lord told Ezekiel he would lay the iniquity of the house of Israel Upon and the house of Judah upon him. He would bear their iniquity upon himself. Basically, it's symbolically, he would be bearing their iniquity. Now, in the temple, when the priests were ministering to the Lord, they were symbolically bearing the sins. Iniquity is another word for sins. They were bearing the sins of the people when they went in to serve the Lord. And as a reminder to them, the priest's garment was a very good reminder because they had two stones, flat stones that were placed um, on their on their shoulders, and uh, they had six names on one and six names on the other, and the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. So when they are going in and serving the Lord and ministering, doing the sacrifices, they're carrying the burden of the of the children of Israel upon their shoulders. Not only that, 
But the, the high priest had what was called an ephod, which was kind of like a little, little vest-like thing. And it had 12 stones across his ch- the chest. And each stone was a different stone. And they were flat, and they had engraved the name of one of the tribes of Israel. And so on his heart, symbolically... He's got the children of Israel on his heart as he's serving the Lord. I mean, I mean, everything is so rich in symbolism for the priests. When they were ministering to the Lord, they had the burden of the people, the sins of the people symbolically upon themselves. It's not just like, oh, that's kind of an interesting thing. God was communicating to his people all down through the years that there was a message there that he was trying to get across. And the picture that God was painting for his people was that when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came, he was going to bear the sins of the people upon himself when he died on the cross. It, it was all pointing to Jesus. It was all a picture of Jesus. Jesus would undergo excruciating pain, not just discomfort, but excruciating pain and humiliation for your and my sin. And so I think in a small way, Ezekiel himself is an illustration of what God would accomplish through Jesus Christ. It's like one of these steak commercials, but wait, there's more. (laughs) There was more that God was instructing Ezekiel to do. Look at verse 9. Also take for yourself wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt, Put them into one vessel and make bread of them for yourself. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it. And your food which you shall eat by weight, 20 shekels a day. From time to time you shall eat it. You shall also drink water by measure, one-sixth of a hen. From time to time you shall drink it. Now, 20 shekels of, of, of grains, basically made into bread or made into little cakes, would be something like about... Eight ounces that he would have a day. Basically, eight ounces of this, of this green bread. And one-sixth of a hen of water is approximately about one and a third pints. So not much. I mean, pretty meager stuff. And, and, and again, put yourself in Ezekiel's shoes. You know, I mean, the shock of having to lay on your side and stuff, you know, that's already, you know, he's probably trying to process that. And then God's telling him about what he's to eat and how much he's to eat, you know, measured out each day. And up till this point, because he didn't, he didn't have an iPad to write on or a notepad or something, um, clay tablets are not that convenient to carry around. And, you know, let me pull out my clay tablet and engrave what you're saying. So he's probably taking mental notes. And I can just imagine Ezekiel's going, okay, 20 shekels worth of bread. Um, uh-huh. Okay, got it. Uh, sixth of a hint of water, got it, check. Uh, but when the Lord tells him what to do next, it's going to be a little bit too overwhelming for Ezekiel. Look at verse 12. And you shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. Yeah, I just hear the, oh. <laughs> then the Lord said, So shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, where I will drive them. I mean, I could just imagine Ezekiel's jaw probably dropped. I mean, if it hadn't already, this is like, this is it. Because look what he says. So I said, Ah, oh, Lord God. That's like an expression of pain, basically. It's like, Oh, Lord. He says, Indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I've never eating, eaten what's died of itself or was torn by beast, nor was abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. 
And if you think about it, Ezekiel, like I said, was born to be a priest. He was raised in a priestly family. Um, they would not, especially about among any other Jews, they would not defile themselves by eating uh, ceremonially unclean food. And so what he's being told to do, to use human waste and to, to heat the food, to bake it, not only was it offensive to his moral conscience, but, I mean, just the thought. I mean, I get kind of grossed out, right? I mean, I get kind of sick to my stomach just thinking about it. I was talking to Ella earlier about, you know, love to try barbecuing turkey for Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, just the, you know, just the, the cold, the, the smoky flavored meat. Well, can you imagine? Well, don't even imagine, but... <laughs> I mean, disgusting, right? Absolutely disgusting. And so at this point, this command of God, I mean, Ezekiel's just, it's just like, it's just too much. And God, he's a merciful God. So God in his mercy towards Ezekiel lets him substitute human waste for cow dung. And that was more of a common thing in those days because what they would do is they'd take a cow or a camel dung and they would mix it with straw and they'd make like little briquettes out of it basically and that's how they would heat their barbecues. I, guess. I don't know if it was barbecues. But <clears throat> Verse 16. Then he said to me, See, I am giving you cow dung instead of human waste and you shall prepare your bread over it. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, surely I will cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and shall drink water by measure and with dread, that they may lack bread and water and be dismayed with one another and waste away because of their iniquity. What was the picture that God was trying to paint for Israel? It was how bad life was going to get for them, for the people that were left in Jerusalem. There'd be starvation. And there'd be scant supplies during the siege of Jerusalem. Food being scarce would be an understatement. Because as we're going to see in the next chapter, it's going to be even worse than what God's saying. It's going to be horrendous. Water would be rationed. Cooking fuel practically non-existent. Not only that, but here's another picture I think God is, is painting for them. When they go into exile in foreign lands, they're no longer going no to be able to eat kosher food. Your, your dietary laws, pff, forget about that. You're not going to be able to do that when you're in a foreign land. And I think the reason why God is getting this across to them was, you know, up until now, even though the, the, the people of Israel were in rebellion against God, even though that was the case, they still dressed like Jews. They still went to the temple and did their things like Jews. They still ate, you know, they didn't eat pork or, you know, crabs or seafood, the different kinds of seafood they didn't eat. They, they observed the dietary laws because that was the way they could earn their righteousness. God's saying, you're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to be able to depend on that anymore. That outward show of piety that you do right now, it, forget about it. And I think... The, 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 the concept of eating hu- food that's cooked over human waste, um, you know, I think really what God is communicating to them is that, you know, on the, ex- on the outside, you guys look really nice, but I know your heart, and your hearts are ugly. And, and you've been going through this exercise trying to act like you're, you're you know, righteous and you're holy, 
but now you're going to have to eat stuff that's just totally disgusting. You're not going to be able to eat kosher food. You're not going to be able to look like good Jews because you're eating like, what are you doing, you know? And I think God is trying to show them, this is the way I see your heart right now. It's polluted. And so now on the outside, you're going to be doing what I see already on the inside of your hearts. And, you know, sometimes, you know, think about this. God's a holy God. God hates sin. Can't abide with sin. And even, you know, we tend to kind of, there's some sins. You know, when I gave my heart to the Lord. There's certain things that I just, you know, I gave my heart to the Lord and I'm not doing those things anymore. And, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, I was able to stay away from things and my life started changing and being transformed and stuff. But you know what? I'm not there yet. There's still aspects of my life. There's still, you know, sins like, you know, it's like, oh, it's a little sin and, you know, that's eh, not a big deal. And God looks at my heart and looks at your heart and goes, no, it is a big deal because it's unholiness and it's, it's rotten. And it, and it stinks, and it's offensive to me. And so I think God is trying to say, this is how I see your heart. You know, I uh, don't want to get too gross, but you know, uh, even a smidgen of dog poop on your shoe will stink up a whole car. <laughs> you ever notice that? You get in the car, it's like, oh, man, who stepped in that stuff? And you look down, it's like, oh, it's all over the gas pedal, <laughs> you know? Even a little bit stinks. And I think God looks at our hearts and goes, you know what? Even a little bit of sin stinks in my eyes. And I think this is really a picture God is trying to paint for the children of Israel there that are left in Jerusalem. We move on to uh, chapter 5, verse 1. And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. You shall burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are finished. Then you shall take one-third and strike it around with the sword, and one-third you shall scatter in the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. You shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment, and then take some of them again and throw them in the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. Now, Ezekiel was a priest. Priests, especially if they took a Nazarite vow, they didn't cut their hair. So whether he was a Nazarite or not, he probably had longer hair. And it was, a, it was an honor for him to have longer hair as a priest. And so God's saying, you're going to shave off your hair and shave off your beard. Now that, for any Jewish man, was like, it was a disgrace to have a shaved off beard. Beards were their pride. I mean, you even go to the Middle East today, it's like they take pride in their beards. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 10, David, King David, he's, uh, he sends some of his mighty men to Hanan the Ammonite to express condolences because Hanan's father had, had died and, and Hanan's father was a friend of David. And so David says, hey, you guys, I want you to go over to the Ammonites there and I want you to just you know, send my condolences to, to Hanan on behalf of his dad. And so his men go there and uh, Hanan's, you know, he thinks, man, these guys are they're coming here, they're spies, or they're here to take advantage of us or some way. And so Hanan captures David's men. He cuts off their clothes to expose their, their rears, basically. To, in humiliation, he shaves off half of their beards and half of their heads and or hair and sends them back to to Israel. And those guys are so ashamed they won't even step foot in Jerusalem. They go to some town on the side there and they send messengers to go tell David what happened. And David's message to them is, 
is, okay, guys, stay in that town until your beards grow back and then, then come back. And he wasn't saying because he didn't want to see it. He just wanted to spare them the embarrassment of having a shaved-off beard because of the humiliation. Of course, you know the rest of the story, David and his men go back and kick tail, but that's another story. But um, so, so this is what Ezekiel's being told. He's got to shave off his hair. He's got to shave off his beard. Um, again, that would be humiliating. And he's not, he can't explain it. He's just doing it. And so the people are like, what in the world is Ezekiel doing now? Ezekiel himself is going to be humiliated, but it's a symbol of the humiliation and the disgrace that the exiles are going to experience when Jerusalem is destroyed. He's to take his hair from his beard and his, and his head, and he's to put it on a scale to weigh it out, to, to divide it out. And that would be symbolic of being judged on God's scales and being found wanted. Then he's to take a few of the strands of the hair and he's to tuck it in his garment, in the hem of his garment, and then divide the rest into, into thirds. Then he's to go lay down by his model city that he built, and he's to take one-third of his cut hair and burn it with fire in the middle of this model city. And this would be symbolizing that a third of the Jews who remained in Jerusalem would be killed by plague and by famine, probably some by fire as well. He's to take another third of his cut hair and strike it around the city with the sword, and it would be symbolic of the one-third of those who would be killed by the sword when, they, when, they, when the Babylonians conquered the city. And then he's to take the remaining one-third and scatter it to the wind, and that would be symbolic of the one-third that would be scattered to the four corners of the world. They'd be dispersed around. And he's to take that few remaining, remember he puts them in the hem of his garment. He's to take some of those hairs, and he's to, uh, or actually maybe it's all of them, I'm not sure. He's to take those hairs out of his garment and toss them into the fire in the model of his uh, city there, symbolizing that there would be a remnant that would be spared during the destruction of Jerusalem but their lives weren't going to be easy either. They're going to have a tough life. And if you go back and look at the story of Gedalia and all those guys, they had it rough when they were left there in the city. They would also suffer. Verse 5, Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments and they have not walked in my statutes. He says, this is Jerusalem in the midst of the nations. What's, what's God saying there? Listen to this psalm. It's Psalm 48, verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, and speaking of Jerusalem, in the city of our God is in His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great kings. God had placed Israel as a nation in the middle of the known world at that time. Israel was to be a nation that stood apart from all the other nations around them. That's why they were circumcised. All the other nations were uncircumcised. The males in, the, in Israel were to be circumcised. They were to be set apart. Israel as a nation, they wouldn't have a dictatorship. They wouldn't even have a democracy. They wouldn't have a monarchy. They were meant to have a theocracy. God was to be their king. 
God was to be there. They were to be ruled by God himself. And Jerusalem, being the the symbolic capital or the center of Israel, was that much more significant. You know, the Bible says, to whom much has been given, much will be required. And that was, of course, certainly true in their case. They had been blessed so greatly, but with that blessing came responsibility. Going back again to while Moses describing the blessing of being God's people, it's in Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. He says this, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded you or commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this is a great nation. Uh, excuse me, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And he says, For what great nation is there that has God so near to it? as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon Him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Moses is saying, you guys, man, what other nation has God, the creator of the universe, as their God? What other nation has God's written words, His commands, his, the, the heart of God written in words that, that you can hold and you can look at and you can read and go, wow, this is what God desires. This is God's will. This is, this is God's heart. There was no other nation that had that. They were so special. And while having God's divine will entrusted to them in the Scriptures, they turned their hearts away from God. They disobeyed God. They rebelled against him, and they had even become more wicked than the nations that were surrounding them, the pagan nations. They were worse than the pagan nations. Verse 7, Therefore, says, thus says the Lord God, Because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are around you, have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I, even I, am against you and will execute judgments in the midst of the sight of the nations. God says, man, I'm against you. God is now going to be their adversary. They would be punished by God in the sight of the heathen nations as a testimony to the nations all around them. You know, in Hebrews chapter 10, 31, it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to have fall into the hands of the living God. If you and I, as God's people, if we don't deal with those secret sins, those those little sins that, you know, that we need to confess, we need to deal with in our lives, you know, we try to keep those things concealed. I don't want anybody to know about this. We've got the secret life, whatever. God has a way of bringing those things hidden in the dark right out into the open. He has a unique way of doing that. And when He does that, then we're forced to deal with those things in a very public way. And it's so much better to deal with those things, you know, before it gets to that point. It's so much better to just get your heart right with the Lord, to get, you know, have a clear conscience and not be hypocrite or whatever and just be, just get right before the Lord. But unfortunately for many people, this is what it takes for them to finally deal with those issues, is to get it out in the open and expose it. And, you know, it's embarrassing, it's humiliating, it's whatever... Um, but God does that when we refuse to deal with the sin in our own lives. 
God had warned and warned his people over and over and over, and he had turned, they had turned a deaf ear to him, so he would deal with them in a very public way. All the nations around would go, wow, those are God's people. Look what God's doing to them. Verse 9, And I will do among you what I have never done, and the like of which I will never do again, because of all your abominations. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers. And I will execute judgments among you, and all of you who remain I will scatter to all the winds. That starvation that would occur during the final siege of Jerusalem, Josephus the historian records it, it was so severe that they were, this is fulfilled prophecy, they were literally reduced to cannibalism during that time. And sadly, it was repeated when Jerusalem was under siege again by Titus Vespasian in 70 AD. They were again reduced to cannibalism. It didn't have to be like that. But because they stubbornly refused to deal with the sin in their lives, God said, okay, I have no choice. I have to deal with the sin. I have to judge the sin in your lives. And this is what it's going to be. Verse 11. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. You know, God says, or excuse me, God can't say, I swear on a stack of Bibles. You ever said that before? I swear on a stack of Bibles. God can't say, I swear on my mother's grave. I mean, those are things God just can't say. The Bible says God can't swear by anything because there's nothing greater than himself. So he just swears by himself. And that's exactly what God is saying here. As surely as I live, he's basically swearing by himself. This means this is going to happen. I'm promising this is going to happen. There was a time, a long time, when God sent his prophets to plead with the people to repent. Time and time again they ignored God's warnings. And so now Ezekiel is there to proclaim the judgment that has come. God is not going to relent. And here, actually, the particular sin is mentioned in particular, and it was that their worship of God was polluted with idolatry. In other words, they still worship God, but they had something else that kind of competed with their worship of God. And, and, and it was idolatry. And in your and my lives, anything that you and I place, it, you know, it could be anything. It could be a relationship. It could be possessions. It could be, uh, you know, whatever. Anything that you and I place in our lives between us and our relationship with God, it's an idol. And, and so God here was looking at how they worshiped him and they said, it's, it's idolatry, it's polluted. That was their sin against him. Verse 12. You're probably wondering, where did he come up with this? One third is going to go into captivity. One th- Man, he's a smart pastor. No, it's for, here in verse 12. One third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. One third shall bow, fall by the sword around you, and I will scatter another third to all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. Thus shall my anger be spent and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be avenged, and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you in sight of all who passes by. God's anger 
will be spent on them. In other words, he's just he's not holding back. It's all going to be poured out on them completely with no holding back. God would cause his fury to rest upon them. That means, you know, it's not going to be like, okay, I'm going to punish you today, tomorrow you're off the hook. No, it was going to be on them for a while. They were going to be in Babylon for many more years. But God's judgment would be poured out, basically, and completely spent on them. Verse 15. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you when I execute judgments among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken when I send against them the terrible arrows of famine which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you. I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Jerusalem should have been a lesson to the surrounding nations. It was a lesson, but it should have been a lesson to fear God. I mean, that's the message that, you know, a blessed nation, it should have been one that people go, man, look at their lives. Look at, their, look at the nation, man. They honor God. I, I should honor God the way they do because look at, look at their lives. Instead, she became a lesson to the surrounding nations to fear God by his judgments against her. Peter writes this in 1 Peter four seventeen. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? You know, as we read this, this is, of course, the nation of Israel, the, the city of Jerusalem. And we're looking at this on a national scale. But you know what's true on a national scale is also true on a personal scale for you and I as individuals, as believers. You are a lesson. You're a testimony to people around you. Your your unsaved friends, your unsaved family, your neighbors, your coworkers, your schoolmates. You are a lesson. The people, especially if they know you're a believer, you are an example to them. You're a testimony. You're either a testimony about how to live for God. People look at their lives and go, wow, there's something different about that person. Now, I, I, I want to find out what they have. You could be that kind of a testimony. Or you could be the other testimony. Or people look at you and go, wow, if God does that to his own children, if God punishes his own people like that, what is it for me then? Because I don't follow the Lord at all. Either way, we're a lesson to the people around us. You know, and God has to deal with sin. And, and, you know, God's wrath was spent on Jesus Christ. It was poured out on on Jesus Christ. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are no longer under judgment for sin because God has judged sin in Christ Jesus for you. But God is a holy God. And if you and I continue in sin, habitual sin, and we're, and we're you know, it's secret sins, things that we just don't want to get rid of, we love it so much, God is going to deal with those sins as well in our lives. And you may get put through the ringer, and it's not to destroy you. God doesn't hate you. God loves you. In fact, why would he send his son if he didn't love you? But God's purpose for them and is God's purpose for us is that our hearts would be 
completely 100% sold out for him. When I mentioned the men's group and, and you know, when Brad was sharing about the men's group, that's really, that, that really kind of is, in a nutshell, what we're trying to accomplish. And that is that us guys, men, family members, or leaders of our family, leaders in our home, leaders in our community, whatever, it's that our hearts would be 100% sold out for God. And, you know, if I'm off by myself, and, uh, of course, you know, I, I'm not because I have my wife, and my wife's a godly woman, and she's, you know, she speaks truth into my, my life. But if I was off by myself and I'm not in fellowship with people, you know, I look at my life and I go, well, I'm, I'm actually pretty good. You know, I, I, don't, I don't murder anybody. You know I, I, you know, I don't rob banks. I'm a pretty good guy. And we tend to kind of maybe get this impression in our hearts that I, I'm not that bad. But when I get in with other believers and I'm in God's word and I'm in fellowship, sometimes I go, oh, you know what? There's areas in my life that you know, it doesn't quite. And we're forced to, to kind of like realize, you know what? Maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. And the purpose for a men's group and when the women's Bible studies the same is that we can all encourage one another. We can be transparent because we're all sinners. You know, none of us have our acts together here. None of us. You know, and we're all growing, we're all learning. And so the purpose behind fellowship, the purpose behind church today is to encourage us, find out what God's will is, but also to be in fellowship, to encourage one another so that we can together become more like Jesus. That's, that's the goal. And so, um, of course, that's what should be the goal of every church, right? I think it is. Hopefully it is. But anyways, why don't you stand and let's go, Lord, in prayer.